Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're continuing our series, I'm Broken, and we're dealing with an issue today, overcoming addictions. Overcoming addictions. Now that is a huge topic, and I just want you to know up front, I know there's no way that I can handle everything about addictions in one message. But I want to give us a general overview and a big picture idea uh, and also as we look at this passage uh, today uh, uh, in Romans 7. And I want to start with a question. Is there anything in your life, and I'm not asking for a verbal response by the way, is there anything in your life that you would consider an addiction? Is there an, an addiction, I would define that by something that you do repeatedly that's actually harmful for you. You do it repeatedly, and it's harmful. For me, I have a repeated addiction. I love food, right? And so what I've had to do in this process is figure out a lot of different things because when I look at this issue of addictions, I can't just pray about it and go, it goes away. I've prayed plenty over this, and it hasn't gone away. It's still there. Pretty obvious that it's a struggle that's gone on for a long time. And so I've had to go back and I've had to evaluate my addiction to food. And actually, as somebody mentioned after the first hour, it's an addiction to taste, really, right? Because I, I just like the way things taste. But there is more than that. And I've had to understand, why do I do this? Why do I have a hard time when somebody offers me food and I'm full? I mean, I can be full. You offer me food, I'm going to take it and eat it. Why do I do that? In part, because of my mama. I had a wonderful mom that was raised by a single mom during the Depression years. And she went hungry to bed a lot. So guess what she said about her kids when she had us? They're never going to go to bed hungry. And we didn't. She, her love language was, here, have some more, right? Her, her love language was, uh, you know, if you ask for a bowl of ice cream, I remember when Susan and I first got married, and she said, oh, yeah, Susan said, yeah, I'll have, I'll have some ice cream. And she was expecting maybe two scoops in a bowl, right? I mean, the bowl's like this. And the, she hands it to Susan, and Susan goes, kind of looking around like, is there any for anybody else? <laughs> I didn't want the whole carton. You know, my mom loved, and so I find to this day, I have a hard time saying no, because if I said no to my mom, then that demonstrated that I was rejecting the thing that she was expressing love with. So there's a deep foundation in there, and it was something that every one of my brothers and sisters struggles with as well. And so I look at that, and I think, wow, it's, there's, addiction is a very complex thing. It's more than just pray about it, it goes away. There's more to it than that. And so I wanted to investigate that, and I was, I was wrestling with what passage in Scripture would be powerful in this regard, and Romans 7 is extremely powerful, and we'll look at it here in a minute. Because we find ourselves when we have addictions, why doesn't God answer my prayer and make it go away, right? I was uh, reading about this one guy, he was a drug addict, a junkie. And he made this comment. He says, you don't wake up one moment and decide to be a drug addict. It takes at least three months. 
And you think, what does he mean, three months? And he, he talks about this idea that you have a curiosity. In fact, he says, I tried it as a matter of curiosity. I drifted along taking shots when I could score. I ended up hooked. And so it's curious, repetition, hooked. That's what he's talking about. That's a process of addiction. And it fits with a lot of what we do. And you think, wow, if I could just not do what I'm curious about, and I especially stop it at the point that I could stop it before I get hooked on it, maybe I could stop it. Well, what happens after I've been hooked? Edgar Allan Poe makes this comment. He says, uh, and Edgar Allan Poe uh, struggled with uh, addictions as well. He says, I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. Only a writer like him could make it sound so amazing. He says, I have not, uh, it has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have periled life and reputation and reason. I mean, think about the damage. You're going to talk about addiction. You do something repeatedly. It's destructive. And he says, he uh, uh, have periled life and reputation and reason. He said, has it been from the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness and a dread of some strange impending doom? Past memories present loneliness, future doom. Pain of life can sometimes lead us to try to drown it, mask it, medicate it in some sort of an addiction. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we do that? Why do, what is, what's going on? Physically, there's things that change. There's changes in our brain. Our, our brain becomes different. And if you look at a a picture of the brain, and go ahead and throw that up there. Oh, by the way, uh, if you're trying to get on the internet, you have a Bible on the internet or whatever, and you're trying to access our Wi-Fi, uh, somehow we got fried on some stuff with lightning uh, with the storms that came, and we're still figuring that out, but the Wi-Fi was one of those. So uh, you won't have any Wi-Fi this morning. Sorry, you're offline. Um, but I'm not sorry, because then we can just focus on what God wants us to, I guess God wants us to not be listening to everything else and be quiet to listen to his voice. It's part of the thing that we prayed about. So you look at the brain, right? And you, this is one picture of the brain and it talks about the dopamine pathways. Well, why is that important? Because dopamine is a, is a feel-good medication in our head that's naturally produced by our body. And it's produced uh, uh, in, in, uh, whenever we have the uh, VTA, which is right here, uh, whenever something happens that's pleasurable, our VTA produces dopamine and it goes to this point, the nucleus accumbens, whatever that is. I'm no brain guy, right? And so uh, I'm just looking at the picture like you are. Nucleus accumbens, that's supposedly, according to this idea, the pleasure center of the brain. Now, we looked at another time under emotions that some uh, posit multiple pleasure centers, but for now we'll just stick with the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens then is recorded in our short-term memory called the hippocampus. That's what usually starts beginning to deteriorate when somebody gets Alzheimer's diseases. They can't remember stuff. You know, the short-term memories, uh, uh, are, are, they struggle with more. And even as you get older with aging, sometimes that is impacted as well. And so this records it. Then you have Another aspect of your brain that, uh, there's a recording right there, um, the amygdala, which creates cues 
that you respond to the next time or triggers that you respond to the next time. And so, and that's not pictured on here. I couldn't find a picture with all of the different pieces that made, that was actually clear enough to be able to see. And so you look at that and you realize, okay, so I see something. I have a cue that causes me to go, oh yeah, if I do this because of the recorded memory in my head, this will be pleasurable and then the dopamine will be released in my brain. You're not thinking all that stuff, but that's what's going on. Your brain is actually being rewired. And then the prefrontal cortex is the part where your thinking happens. And so you begin making plans to respond to the cue in a certain way because of the recorded thing that's in your hippocampus that uh, hits the pleasure center of your brain. And then what happens is what you did before is not enough anymore, and so you got to up the ante. And if, so if it's drugs, you got to take a higher dosage of drugs because a smaller dosage is no longer sufficient. And so you find yourselves physically changed, physically changed so that when you see the cue, you really struggle. And so the question is, what is your addiction? At first, I was thinking when I was preparing this that there may be a few people that are addicted to certain things like alcohol or drugs or prescription drugs or pornography or sex or whatever. And then I started thinking, how many of us is not addicted to something? How many of us do things that are harmful for us and we repeat them? And I was thinking that may be 100% or probably pretty close. Vaping has become popular in our culture, and yet it's destroying people's lives. It creates uh, pneumonia and, and death, and, and we've, we've seen uh, over 1,000 deaths in the United States, uh, or 1,200 uh, in the United States because of vaping. Uh, maybe addicted to lying. Sometimes you lie just when the truth would be better, and yet you still lie. I mean, truth is always better, by the way. Uh, gambling addictions. Caffeine addictions. I mean, Starbucks it can be a real big addiction, right? Phone addiction. Can you go through a conversation and, it, and your phone buzz in your pocket and you don't do this? And you just let it buzz and you let it go and you just ignore it and you can just have the conversation? That's hard for us to do. Screen addictions. When you look at social media, some you could spend hours Chocolate. Sorry, I had to throw that one in. <laughs> so addictions can have all these different effects, physical effects, mental effects, relational tolls, uh, uh, financial toll. It can cost us dearly. And so what we need to make sure is that we're not defined by our addictions and that we, we do something about them. And so how do we solve our addictions? How do we do it? Well, I think that Romans 7 gives us some great insights. And we're going to start at Romans 7, verse 14. In Romans 7, 14, it says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. I thought, man, there's some powerful statements in there. One is the law is spiritual. Well, I would expect that. The second is I am unspiritual. Paul, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect Paul to say I'm unspiritual. What? One of the most spiritual guys I know. You wrote scripture, right? The Spirit of God worked through you and, and moved you to, to write the Word of God. And I think, wow, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He knows wherewith he struggles. 
And he says, I do not understand what I do. That phrase is powerful. I want you to think about what he's saying there. I don't understand what I do. I don't understand the word logic. I don't reason what I do. So what, what's, the, what's the disconnect there? Reasoning and unreasoning. Logic and illogic. Thinking and emotions. Whenever you make the statement to somebody, and, or maybe you've had the statement made to you, what were you thinking? Ever had that one? It's been said? If you're a parent, you probably said it, right? If you are a child, which we all are, you probably had that said to you. I was the rebellious child, so I had it said often in my life. What were you thinking? There's an obvious answer just kind of hanging in the room, right? You weren't. See, when we ask the question, what were you thinking? We're asking a logical question for something that was completely illogical. We're asking for a reasoned explanation of something that was emotion and they don't fit together because that's why you get the answer. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. Why did you jump off that roof? I just, you know, my buddies and I, we were uh, betting each other on that, you know, that we could fall funny or what. I mean, you look at all these things and you realize we are trying to reason with something that isn't rational. And so if we're trying to solve this issue of addictions and we're trying to understand in a way that we can reason with our own, either with ourselves or with somebody else, we realize reason's not going to solve it for us. That's why it also doesn't solve it whenever we say, I think you need to just blank. Oh, you smoke a lot? Well, I think you just need to throw them away. Well, that's easier said than done, right? I mean, it may be that you need a nicotine patch. It may be that there, you need accountability. It may be that you, I mean, there's some other things that you need to put into place, right, in order to quit something. And there are some addictions we need to quit now, right away. We can't just ease off of them like that where you get a nicotine patch. You can't get patches for other things that need to just come to a stop because they're destroying relationships and they're destroying our life. In fact, I got a text just today, this morning. Uh, not a text, but it was some sort of pop-up thing that I'm on news feed. And it said, smoking five cigarettes a day does so much damage to the lungs that you don't even increase your odds much by smoking the whole pack. And I was thinking, well, some people are going to look at that and say, well, then why not smoke the whole pack, right? <laughs> but I, I think what they were wanting you to see is, no, you want to stop even the five because it's destroying you. Why would you continue it? Because it's not rational. It's because it's playing with the pleasure center of our brain and that we are more wrapped up and addicted to dopamine in our brain than, than we are to being healthy and, and not having those, those things in our lives that destroy us. And so we need to look at God's word. And as we look at his word, we need to understand it's not rational. And so I'm not going to understand what I do. He's not saying it as a question. Well, I don't understand what's going on. He's saying, I don't understand because it's irrational. It's illogical. 
And then he goes on to describe it. And we'll read this, the rest of this paragraph. He says in verse 15, For what I want to do, what I want to do, I do not do. So I don't do what I want to do. But what I hate, that is what I do. So I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I hate to do, which is very irrational. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So I'm saying the law is a good thing. The law is right. The law is righteous. Whenever I know I don't want to do it, but I'm still doing it. Now that seems confusing at first, but let's go on. He says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. Now he's not dismissing his own responsibility here. When he says, but it is the sin living within me. He's saying there's an alien master living in me. And I can either serve that alien master or I can serve the Lord. But what we find ourselves doing is serving this alien master in our lives. That's, that's ruthless. That's destructive. And we find ourselves uh, irrationally following because it just feels good to do so. In fact, I remember Josh McDowell said, doing the wrong thing at first feels good. Long term, it feels bad. Doing the right thing at first feels bad. But long term, it feels good. And I was thinking, wow, what a, what a powerful statement that is. But typically, we choose the wrong. He says in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me. That fits with his first three chapters in the book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with sin in the book of Romans. And it basically says we're all sinful and there's nothing that we can do about it on our own. And so it fits with where he's gone in the book. He says, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out implied on my own. I can't make it happen. And so first principle is I don't understand because I, it's, a, it's an irrational thing. Addiction to sin is an irrational thing. The second is I need help. I can't carry it out on my own. I, I need God. I need people around me. I need the people of God, the body of Christ, to help me with these addictions. He says, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. That's addiction, right? That's what he's talking about. He says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living within me that does it. So he restates that. He restates that. Why? Because he wants to emphasize that point, that we have sin residing within us. Now, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand the book of Romans. Because there are some that look at this passage and say, this is not the normal experience of a believer in Jesus. We shouldn't be going through those things. We shouldn't have this struggle in our lives of addiction to sin. There are others who look at this and say, no, this is the normal experience of the believer and that we're going to always have these struggles in our lives and it's not about having the, the goal of the Christian life is not to cure all the struggles we deal with. The goal of the Christian life is to be trusting the Lord to help us to begin to walk more like him in these areas as well as others. And I think it's the second. And the reason I do is because of the outline of the book of Romans. If you look at an outline of the book of Romans, you have uh, here on the left the chapter numbers. And then you have uh, five S words that begin with S. Makes it easy to remember. Each of these encompass three chapters. And then the last one encompasses five chapters. The first one, as you can tell, there's a split chapter here, right? One through three 
sin says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot save ourselves. We do not normally seek after God on our own. 3, 4, and 5 tells us that salvation is from God, that he has given us Jesus as a demonstration of his love, Romans 5, 8, and that that demonstration of his love takes care of the sin issue in us when we respond in faith to Jesus. And that when we believe in him, as Romans 5, 1 talks about, it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and that statement, justified through faith, uh, describes what the whole book is about, justification by faith, that we have peace with God, not uh, an internal, personal peace, but we have peace in, in regard to relationship with Jesus Christ, with God himself. It says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so that's his focus uh, in this section, is this great salvation. And then in 6 through 8, he deals with sanctification. Sanctification is, is, a, is a long word that simply deals with our walk with the Lord, that we are becoming purified and we're becoming more like Jesus in our walk. And then in 9 through 11, which is a difficult section in the book of Romans, he's dealing with the sovereignty of God in election, the sovereignty of God with Israel, the sovereignty of God in, in this salvation that he has provided for us. And then in 12 to 16, is so now we know all this theology, how do we live it out in our life? And so 12 through 16 deals with our beginning to walk with him in service. So where does chapter 7 fit? It's right here in this area of sanctification. I think that because it's in this section on sanctification, that it's dealing with the normal experience of the believer. Now, some might say, well, it's a flashback to his pre-Christian days. I don't think that that holds water. And so this is the normal struggle of the believer. Know this, that if you have an addiction, that you may see progress in the addiction because God in his power, uh, he not only died, Jesus not only died to save us from the judge, uh, judgment of sin, he, he died to save us from the power of sin in our daily lives now. And so we should see some progress. That's something that we should be able to grow in as we grow in Christ. But the struggle will always be there. The struggle doesn't go away. You can talk to an alcoholic and they'll tell you it's 24-7. It's full court press. It's pressing on every day, trusting the Lord to give them the strength to stay away and to stay straight and to stay off of, off of the, uh, uh, or on the wagon and not to fall off. It's also something that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul, he has a thorn in the flesh, and you would think after he prayed three times that God would just take it away from him. I mean, he's Paul the apostle, right? He's, he's the guy that's writing scripture, and, and yet God said, no, I'm not taking it away. What? I'm going to be struggling with this the rest of my life? Yes. All he said was, my grace is sufficient for you. And the same is true for us. God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to forgive you when you fail. His grace is sufficient to help give you the strength to succeed and to break the addiction. And so you look at that and you realize, wow, I, I need to trust the Lord. I need to walk with him. That's the only thing that's going to help me. Why? Maybe I could just be harder on myself. Maybe I could just make more rules to, to be successful. And Paul 
throws that out the window. In fact, when you look at this, he's asking in this section on sanctification, starting in chapter 6, 1. He's dealing with this issue. He asks four different questions in, in series uh, about sin. The first question he asks in 6, 1 is, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. Meganoita, the strongest way you can say it in the Greek, by no means. Absolutely not. Why does he say that? Because he says in, the, in chapter 5, he says the law was added so that transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so the argument is, so I should sin so that grace may abound. Right? That's the libertarian that's licensed. Uh, grace was not given to give us license to sin more. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. Why would you give yourself to that which destroys you? Is his comment, basically. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Then in verse 15 of chapter 6, he's asked a second question. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? No. Now, why does he say that? Because in the verse before, verse 14, he said, For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law. What? We're not under law but under grace? I've had people tell me, Greg, you need to balance your preaching on grace with preaching about the law. And, 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 and the thing is, is, no, I shouldn't because we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And grace doesn't mean just I can do whatever I want to do and, and I get more grace. That's not the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace is so that I am free. You shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. That I'm set free so that I can live the truth. So that I can become more like Christ. So that I can know that I'm forgiven. So I can know that I'm not condemned and feel the pain of that. And the fear of not being forgiven. And in fact, in 7.6, he says, But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. And then he gives us a hint to the solution. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I respond in faith. I respond trusting him. I obey his word and I have the, his strength to care, help me carry it through. And I trust the spirit of God. And so then you begin to wonder, well, maybe the problem is with the law says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No. He says, indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. But then he kind of gives us a clue as to what happens with the law. He says, for I would have not known what coveting was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead because you don't know that you have sin. In fact, that's one of the reasons people want to do away with the scriptures. Because if we have no scripture, then we have no moral law, then I can do whatever I want to do. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that, I was, that was intended to bring life, so the law was written for a good reason to bring life to me, but because... Adam and Eve sinned, and I have a propensity to sin. Instead of bringing life, Paul says it actually brought death. 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So the law is good, but because of what it does in me, because of sin, my propensity to do the wrong thing, it brings death into my life. It brings destruction for me. And you see that in all sorts of little ways. 
I mean, speed limit for one. Set, it's a number. Do you go the exact number or do you find yourself going, oh, they won't stop me unless I'm five miles over, right? And, and we do the same thing. I was, there was a path uh, in the, uh, when they built this new building at the University of Texas when I was there and they built these sidewalks, beautiful sidewalks and people didn't use the sidewalks. They went the straight line right across the grass, you know? So you saw this dirt thing in the middle of this beautiful grass. And so they put a sign there thinking that it would solve the issue and it says, don't walk on the grass, and so the path just went around the sign on both sides. <laughs> Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. That's what's going on. That's what happens. And so what we find is we try to set up stronger, stricter things in our lives so that we can fight these addictions. And what we find is, is it doesn't seem to help. It doesn't seem to make it better. And in fact, uh, we see in 7, 8 where it says he lacks the ability or he says, uh, uh, I cannot carry it out. The original Greek word that that whole phrase translates means to bring about a result by doing something. I can't bring about the result of freedom from addiction by doing something. I need help. And so we tell people, oh, you need to have a can-do attitude. Is that biblical? A can-do attitude? I can do this. Not an I can do attitude. He can do attitude, maybe. That he can transform my life. He can change it. He can take away an addiction. He can help me with an addiction. He has brought resources into my life to help me with these things. But it's not going to come about because I'm harder on myself. Paul says that in Colossians. Same author. He says, if, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promote self-made religion and asceticism. Asceticism meaning doing without, being severe on yourself, which he uh, amplifies with the next phrase, and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Making more rules is not going to solve it for us. What's going to solve it, he says in Colossians 2.18, is holding fast to the head. Holding fast to Jesus. Holding close to him. That's why he says here in our passage, in verse 24, in fact, he talks about this, this law of, and, and another law, he says in 21, he says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law. There's another law around. What is this other law? At work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. I've got this war going on that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that I need to take every thought captive of the obedience of Christ. That's, where, uh, that's a powerful thing that we need to do. We can take every thought captive only because he helps us in that. But this is the other law at work. and It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And that's why Jesus died to take away that prisonership, to take away that power of, of sin in our lives. In 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from the body of this death? I mean, you can just hear the pain in that and you can feel that. You can relate to that in some cases where you've said, Lord, take this away from me. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be slave to this anger. I don't want to be slave to pornography. I don't want to be slave to this stuff. Help me. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you think, wait a minute, that seems like a pat answer, right? Where's the solution in that? Yeah, it's Jesus. The solution is Jesus, but how? I found a cue, or clue in the word rescue. Powerful clue there. In the word rescue is this meaning in the original. It's one word. And here's what he said. This has more to do with, with uh, uh, has more with the meaning of drawing to oneself than merely rescuing from something. Oh, wow. So he won't necessarily rescue me from. I may still struggle with it. There may be that struggle my whole life. And that creates in me the desire and dependence on him. It's why God didn't take away the thorn in the flesh from Paul because his grace was sufficient. I wouldn't learn about God's sufficient grace unless I had the struggle. And so he doesn't always take the struggle away. So this chapter is not saying that I can't have victory over addiction. It is saying I may have struggled my whole life. And the key and the solution is Jesus, that he rescued me to him. He wants me to be close to him. And he doesn't necessarily take something from me. I think that's so key that we understand what the real goal is here. What is the goal in the Christian life in regard to addiction? In, in some cases, we, have, we just have to have victory over an area because it's destroying a relationship. It's destroying a marriage and we have to immediately do something about it. But other things that, that we just can't seem to quite get over, and even if we've gotten over it, we're having to trust God every day for, is that struggle will be there. Romans 7 doesn't just go away because we will it so, because we pray it so, because Jesus died on a cross. He said the struggle is there. That's part of the Christian life. And the key is understanding I'm not condemned. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. I'm set free. I don't have to keep falling into sin. I don't have to keep doing those things, even though I will, and even though I will until Jesus comes back one day. But he's taken away the teeth of the law, which is my own embarrassment, my own guilt, my own everything that's within me that's fearful and that's sinful, which he talked about in chapter one. So what steps do we take? One is we got to realize it's complicated. It's a complex issue. But the second thing is, is that we need to come clean. We need to realize that we have addictions and we need to do something about them. And 85% of the problem is solved by simply admitting, I got a problem, which most of us struggle with. We struggle with admitting that. In fact, most, people, most of us say, oh, I don't have an addiction. Uh, I can quit this anytime I want to. Oh, really? Then why not? Go ahead. Let's start today. Right? Well, I don't really want to. Right. But it's destroying your life. It's destroying a relationship. 
It's destroying your lungs. It's destroying part of you. It's destroying uh, your just, I mean, whatever the thing is, right? And so we look at that and think, we got to come clean and we got to say, you know what? I got this going on in my life and it's destroying part of me and it needs to stop. And I'm not going to just be content with letting it go on. I'm going to fight it even if every day of my life I fight my food addiction every day of my life with every meal, with every choice of everything that I put in my mouth. I fight it. And sometimes I have victory, sometimes I don't, but I still fight. I'm not going to give up the fight and I'm trying to figure it out still. Logic's not going to solve it. I don't understand it. It's an emotional response. It's a brain response. More restrictions aren't going to make it better. I just have to decide I'm going to fight it. And there's going to be a struggle. And I have to know the struggle may always exist. It's okay. Because it's not about the struggle. It's about nearness to Christ. It's being drawn to him. Allowing him to, to soothe me, to comfort me whenever I am not successful. To know that there is no condemnation, that, that when I put my faith in Jesus, he accepts me as I am, and he knew about the addictions to begin with. He knew about my failings. It means to have a close friend. It may mean, mean to get professional help. It may need, mean to get medical help, but get help and cling to Christ because he gave us power over sin, and he did it to set us free. Father, we come to you this morning and we admit to you there's all sorts of stuff in our lives that are addictions that we need help with. We can't do it on our own and so we admit that to you, Lord. We can't kick these bad habits is what we want to call them rather than addictions, but that's what they are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us with these bad habits, these addictions, these, these things that, that threaten to undo us, threaten to destroy us. Help us to get serious about them, Lord. Help us to do something about them. And they're not rational. We can't figure out. We can't ask ourselves, what was I thinking? We just got to do something about it. Reason's not going to solve it, but you have solved it in Jesus Christ. So help us to draw near to you. Nearness to you is our good. And we ask for your strength to take healthy steps, to become healthy, and to be what you've asked us to be in Jesus Christ. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray. And Lord, we look for, to you for the strength to make that happen. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.